The image of the dove that clutched an olive branch is truly emblematic of the Jewish people. We could so easily have become ravens, desperate creatures living in the nighttime of history, meandering aimlessly, but instead, Jews made hope a central virtue. One of the most famous birds in the history of literature is Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, known for its nattering, nevermore. It is largely unknown, however, that this was in fact an actual raven, the pet of another ingenious author, Charles Dickens. And the raven had a name, Grip. The invaluable travel site Atlas Obscura reports that, quote, Grip the raven was a beloved pet of Dickens, and he was so charmed by the mischievous, talkative bird that he made him a character in his serialized narrative, Barnaby Rudge, where at one point, in a sure inspiration to Poe, someone asks, at hearing a noise, what was that, him tapping at the door, end quote. Grip sits stuffed today in the Free Library of Philadelphia. You can thus go there to see a raven that appeared in two important works of literature, and which was the actual pet of one of the most famous authors in the history of English letters. But rightly understood, Dickens was not the first figure linked to an influential text who kept birds. And as we shall see, a raven that was perhaps a pet will play a central role in the story of Noah. But unlike Grip, this raven, this ornithological specimen, would be joined with another bird, an exquisite creature that would teach us more than Noah's raven or Dickens or Poe's ever could. Welcome to Bible 365. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. When we last left off, God had decided to destroy the world, with only Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Almighty. Noah is instructed to build an ark to preserve himself and his family from the destined deluge yet to come. But it is not only human beings that will board the ark. The Almighty adds in chapter 6, verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort that thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee, male and female, of birds after their kind, cattle after their kind, Every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every sort, shall come to thee to keep them alive. As children learning the story, the image of the animals enchants us. As adults, we tend to smile indulgently as our own sons and daughters bring home pictures of lions, bears, birds, aardvarks, and antelopes boarding this floating zoo. But the Bible does emphasize an ornithological element as the deluge comes to its conclusion. The rain falls for 40 days and 40 nights and the ark floats in a water-soaked world for many days more. Noah seeks signs that the water has abated, and we are suddenly introduced to two birds of very different behavior. Chapter 8, verse 6. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth the raven, which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. This means that the raven discovered no signs of life. We are further informed. Also, he sent forth the dove from him to see if the waters were abated from the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him. And he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off, so Noah knew that the waters were abated. Thus, the dove, and not the raven, finds evidence of life after the flood. We are further informed by the Bible that he waited yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which returned not again to him anymore. But here, ladies and gentlemen, a difficulty presents itself. 
It is only many days later after this entire escapade that Noah is given explicit permission by the Almighty to exit the ark in verse 15. And God spoke unto Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons, and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both fowl and cattle, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Only at this point are the animals brought aboard the ark allowed to leave. Why then would Noah, before the divine command, let two of his birds fly away from the ark? instead of awaiting the Almighty's instructions. My great-great-great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, offers an answer. The dove and the raven, he suggests, were not aboard the ark as part of the assembly of animals kept to preserve wildlife for posterity. These birds, he suggests, were Noah's pets, for in ancient times, birds were kept with a purpose. Ravens shielded from local pests, whereas doves and pigeons had the capacity to fly very far and to bear messages. Thus, the raven sent first almost immediately returns to the ark. Noah then sent his other beloved creature. But even the dove, with an extended flight capacity, could not at first find land, and then, at its second outing, brought back an olive branch, as it was trained to do. Finally, on the third week, the dove did not return. This, Rabbi Berlin notes, proves that the bird was not brought on for the continuity of its species. For doves, he argues, mate for life. And if it had a mate back on the ark, it would surely have come back. Sending out these birds, Rabbi Berlin further argues, did not in any way violate God's command to stay on the ark because these were not creatures that were brought aboard under the Almighty's original instructions. They were merely along for the ride because they were near and dear to Noah's heart. This is an exquisite ornithological exegesis, but it is also poetically profound. Noah is the ancestor and embodiment of post-Diluvian humanity, and if we are to imagine our ancient ancestor boarding the ark with his two pets, perhaps a raven on one shoulder and a dove on the other, then we can deduce from this that we too, in a sense, have a raven and a dove within us, two capacities in our character. The raven, at least today, feasts not on olive branches but on carrion. Perhaps Noah let his raven fly around because it would have amidst the receding water feasted off the animals that had drowned in the flood. Edgar Allan Poe thus fittingly chose the raven as a symbol of hopelessness when he describes in his poem how once upon a midnight dreary as he pondered weak and weary the death of his love who was named Lenore when all of a sudden in flew a raven who, when asked his name, uttered in response the word nevermore. Poe then writes that he asked the raven if he would one day be reunited with his beloved bride in the Garden of Eden. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still of bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels named Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Like in the Bible, the raven here is the symbol of death, dreams denied, in a word, nevermore. The raven inside us is our capacity for despair. But then there is the other bird within, the symbol of another aspect of our soul, the dove which persevered and found land. It is often assumed that the dove and the olive branch clutched in his beak, together and separately, symbolize the biblical celebration of peace. Now, ladies and gentlemen, peace can, of course, be a wonderful thing. But at the same time, war is at times also important. And 
as Ecclesiastes will later inform us, there is a time for war and a time for peace. Harry Truman once famously explained to Winston Churchill that in the symbol of the United States, the eagle clutches an olive branch in one talon, symbolizing peace, and arrows in the other, symbolizing war, and that the eagle's head is always tilted toward the olive branch, signifying the preference for peace. Churchill supposedly responded, In my opinion, Mr. President, the eagle's head should be placed on a swivel so that it could be pointed whichever way the times require. I believe, ladies and gentlemen, that for the Bible, the dove and the olive branch clutched in its beak symbolize not peace or war, but something different altogether. Hope. Jews, akin to the individuals and animals aboard the ark, have spent many moments surrounded by the stormy sea of history, threatened by a deluge of death, yet they never followed the example of Noah's raven, who seemingly gives up. To paraphrase Poe, we lived in centuries dark and dreary as we pondered the enemies that awaited us outside our door. But like the dove, we were able to believe in and seek signs of a better life that we could sense lay around the bend. Hope. The image of the dove that clutched an olive branch is truly emblematic of the Jewish people. We could so easily have become ravens, desperate creatures living in the nighttime of history, meandering aimlessly, but instead Jews made hope a central virtue. And Hatikva, the hope, is now the national anthem of the State of Israel, with the refrain, Od lo avda tikvateno, our hope is not lost. And if the phrase in Solomon's song, which we shall see later in this year, Yonati Rayati, my beloved dove, is taken by Jews as a description of the marriage between Israel and the Almighty, it is perhaps because we too mate for life, for our national life, and because our spouse is the Eternal Almighty. This love between us, we believe, is the very source of our hope and the guarantor of our eternity. The biblical description of the dove hearkens the dawn of hope and, seemingly, of a renewed hope by God for humanity. For God himself, at this point, commits to never destroy the world once more. This, it would seem, is the aesthetic meaning of the covenantal symbol that reflects the divine promise never to bring a flood upon the earth again. Chapter 9, verse 13. God says, And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. The very resonance of the rainbow derives from the darkness of the storm that precedes it, describing how the rainbow comes into being when light meets the resistance of the darkness of the cloud the physicist Arthur Zhezhong writes, where light meets darkness, colors flash into existence. What this means, ladies and gentlemen, is that a world without darkness is a world without color. And therefore, if the rainbow is now a symbol of God's forgiveness of the world and of his refusal to destroy it, it is because the rainbow's dazzling display actually reminds us that it is precisely in an imperfect world that color emerges. Yes, this is a world in which darkness exists, in which evil exists, but is precisely in such a world where beauty, not just visual beauty, but also moral and spiritual beauty, can emerge in a new and profound way. Perhaps God comes to terms with humanity because it is precisely our imperfections that in the end will allow for certain new instantiations of goodness. True, we sin, but in overcoming our failures, we can also show a new degree of heroism. While we often suffer due to others, 
It is often how we respond to the disappointments of life, where true moral victories can emerge. Man has an instinct for evil, and man is not inherently good. But perhaps this allows for a world where certain human virtues can now come into being. The great philosopher and baseball player, Yogi Berra, once supposedly reflected that if the world was perfect, it wouldn't be. Which I take to mean that without sin and failure, there would be no opportunity for virtues such as repentance and forgiveness. It is the imperfections of the world that allow for certain perfections to come to the fore. There is no realm on earth devoid of darkness, but it is precisely in such an existence where human grandeur can make itself known. In the face of the brutality of nature, there is also made manifest the brilliance of human invention. In the face of man's failures, there is the glory of repentance. In the face of evil, there is the radiance of courage and goodness. In the face of indeterminacy, there is also found what is the central virtue of our story, hope. The Bible believes in our ability to reflect the color and radiance of sanctity in an imperfect world. The raven within us, our capacity for despair, makes the fortitude of the dove when we bring that aspect of ourselves to the fore all the more resplendent. Will Noah or his children be able to understand this message of hope? Or will the true human embodiment of this virtue only arrive with Abraham? We will examine this question in lectures to come, but we are meant to emerge from the tale of the deluge after humanity was nearly entirely destroyed for its sins with a deeper appreciation of the moral capacity and emotional resilience of mankind. It is this element of ourselves to which Emily Dickinson once paid tribute in a poem. I had read this work many times in the past, but only when I looked at it through the lens of our own story did I realize that I was not the first to identify the dove with hope because Dickinson clearly links the bird that flew amidst the flood with the very same virtue. Listen carefully to her words. And in this poem, which we can see as a mirror image of Poe's work of the raven, the references to the drama of the deluge become clear. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Noah's tale of two pets is particularly poignant this year as we emerge from the deluge of disease from a global pandemic. It is at this moment that the image of the dove inspires all of us to cherish life's possibilities and to pray that our own hopes for the future be vindicated in the days to come. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.